If you get a Bible, I invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm going to throw a little curveball at you and uh, read from the New Living Translation tonight. So if you have a device, that's an easy change. If you brought your own Bible in another version, um, you might want to use it as a um, little paper holder tonight. Um, And also there's some notes that are available to you that I'll uh, make it easier to follow out of the Scripture text today because it's recorded right in the notes there. And um, I am grateful for two things. I'm grateful for the opportunity to uh, be with you tonight. And when I mean I'm grateful, I recognize that when public speakers come up and they're a guest, they're supposed to say things like, hey, I'm really glad to be here. It's an honor to be here. Um, I don't know about them, but I genuinely mean that. It's an honor to be in and among what God is doing here at Renovation Church. I have high esteem and regard for your pastor, Pastor Mike, who uh, um, is an influential leader in town, and I'm honored to serve with him and and share, in large part, draft off of his enthusiasm and investment in the local church here in central New York. And we're we're proud to be a part of what God is doing in Syracuse, not just here in, this, in these suburbs, but as, as a part of what God is doing in the church of Syracuse. And um, we are especially honored to partner with you guys here in this space. And uh, my only regret isn't that there, that there isn't more that we could do uh, to help and to see the church advance and uh, make ground and take ground. I don't know if you read recently as the headlines has hit that Upstate New York is like the 14th least uh, Bible literate city in America. Um, we, have our cu- uh, we have our work cut out for us. Let me change that. God has His work cut out for Him. And uh, it's His work, His church, His, his uh, kingdom that's advancing, and it's our privilege to be a part of it. So we're thankful that we could partner with you guys. And uh, I don't know if you know you're partnered with us, but we're very, very much aware that, you're partnered, that we're partnered with you guys. And and uh, it's an honor to be here. We're going to talk a little bit about um, a little upstart, fresh, vibrant church in Thessalonica. And uh, this church is new. This church is just getting started. This church is led by young leaders. Uh, it has been invested in by Silas and Timothy. And also Paul is writing this letter with those two. And he's writing specifically to the members of that body and his instructions to, that member, to the members of the body are very, very pertinent to us. And um, we're going to get to that in a bit. Um, well, let's read that together. If you've got your Bible with you or, or you've got the notes in front of you, you'll be able to follow along. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 15. And what we're going to see here is we're going to see that there are God-pleasing churches, and specifically, God-pleasing churches do specific things, right? It's, 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 uh, God-pleasing churches don't just, uh, um, don't just adopt one single aspect or one single trait or one single character and then um, uh, become one-dimensional. God-pleasing churches shine brightly in the darkness of culture, and there's many ways and reasons why they shine brightly. And we're going to talk about two of those here tonight. Would you read with me 1 Thessalonians 5, 12-15 in the New Living Translation? Dear brothers and sisters, honor those who are your leaders in the Lord's work. They work hard among you and give you spiritual guidance. Show them great respect and wholehearted love because of their work. And live peacefully with each other. Brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy, encourage those who are timid, take tender care of those who are weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one pays back evil for evil, but always try to do good to each other and to all people. So Paul and and Silas and Timothy are writing this letter to the Thessalonica uh, church, and they're giving them specific instructions, and specifically they're, they're saying, this is how to please God. This is the specific way in which you can please God, and... um. So what we're going to try to do here is we're going to try to look at two aspects, really, on how it is that churches like ours, churches like yours, we the church specifically please God as it relates to being a local church body. And you might, uh, it might be important for you to know that earlier in the, ch- earlier in the book, Paul specifically says, I, I applaud you. I want to say I commend you for your well-known reputation for the deeds that you're doing that are loving, for your faithfulness to the gospel and for the way in which you are sharing brotherly love. He said, your church has a good reputation. 
among the community. And uh, then he follows that up with dealing specifically with how to address specific topics that we're going to talk about here today. Several years back, I discovered inadvertently that I was way out of shape. I was sitting down, I'll give you a nutshell version, I was sitting down in the, uh, at the state fair and I was right there by the center of progress area where um, the uh, coal muffler court, which is what, Chevy court now, is it Chevy or coal? I don't know which is which. It's all kind of blended into one awful experience for me. I can't seem to remember. Um, but I remember sitting on a park bench and I had literally just told my family I needed a break because we'd been walking for like four minutes in a row and I needed to sit down. And, I, and I, watched, I watched this guy walk by me, and I was probably 30, oh, I would say 38 years old, and I watched this guy walk by me who looked like he was about my age, and he had five children. He had them all neatly packed away in all these packages. He had like a double stroller. He had a, a backpack. He had two kids latched onto the side, and he was walking his family like he was shot out of a cannon with these mi- uh, biking shorts, and I mean, the guy was doing the old power walk right through the state fair. And I thought, this guy's going to go one end of the state fair to the other end of the state fair in minutes. And I'm sitting down. I just asked my family if we could take a break. And the six of us are, are, are sitting around, standing around. And I'm sitting on this bench eating an ice cream saying, I need a timeout. <laughs> so I can finish my ice cream. A day before that, I was wrestling my kids on the, in the living room. And no, no longer than a minute after I began to uh, wrestle them on the floor, I asked them for another timeout. I said, i got to take a break. I can't breathe. I had $50 of asthma medication and uh, um, of sinus medication sitting on my drawer that I just got back from the drugstore with that I was supposed to be taking. Uh, I had just re-upped with steroids and puffers and nasal sprays and what have you. And it occurred to me at the state fair as this guy whizzed by me that I should be more like that guy and less like this guy. And that was the first time in my adult life that it occurred to me that I was out of shape and overweight and I needed, I needed this guy's life. As he walked by, I thought, that should be me. And one of the things that occurred to me a short time after is that no matter what you picture in your mind that you look like, it was still surprising me to walk through the mall and look at those mirror windows that you walk by. Sometimes I'd be walking in the mall and I would look and see myself walking uh, probably about well over 200 pounds and I would go, oh, who's that guy? Oh, that's me. That's me. I'm looking at myself. You ever had that experience? You're just not convinced that you are what you really are? And I learned very quickly that if, if you want to become what you picture in your mind, it's not going to happen naturally. It's going to have to happen unnaturally. In other words, if you want to remain the way you are, all you have to do is what you've been doing. If you want to become the person that you currently are, all you have to do is settle on doing nothing different than you're doing already, and you will become that person. By default, we naturally drift towards a state of uh, um, sedentary um, status quo, don't we? Have you noticed that? When you start thinking of yourself as as this new, fitter, more vibrant, more energetic person, and you get this picture in your mind, along with that picture comes a whole set of behavior changes and lifestyle changes and new habits, doesn't it? And so it's one thing to have a picture of what it looks like to be healthy and fit. It's another thing to be willing to tackle the new patterns, new priorities, and new energies that are going to be invested to get to that place. The same is true for our churches. The same is true for we as the body of Christ. No matter what it is we want to accomplish in the kingdom and partnering with God to become, all we have to do to stay the same and stay unhealthy and stay, uh, uh, stay, stay adrift is do the same things we've always done. That's not hard to do. I think, uh, I probably speak for most people when I say, given my own default mode, I slip into idle. Anybody else do that? Sometimes I even use uh, sin to motivate myself. Now, let me explain. Hold on. Hold on. Sometimes I think, if I don't do that, it'll look really bad. Like, if I continue to make my wife do the snow blowing, the neighbors are going to think I'm an absolute slouch, lazy, bum husband. So I started, to have, I started to think maybe I should do the snow blowing in the family and not my wife. I'm just kidding. You guys don't know me well, but I'm just kidding. I don't have her do the snowblowing. But I, sometimes I use pride to motivate myself. You ever done that? You ever use pride to motivate yourself? This isn't going to look bad. I better do this, right? 
Sometimes, um, sometimes there are other things that we use to motivate ourselves that kind of pay off for us. But what I'm going to ask you to do is to think with me, is it possible to get where God wants us to go? We're going to have to embrace new behaviors, new attitudes, and new values to get there so that we remain on the path of real health. And I care, I care much like you, I care about the health of God's church no matter where it is, don't you? Anybody ever cringe when you see God's church being represented poorly in public? Or on the political platforms? Or out in the street corners? That there's just a part of me that goes, oh, it doesn't represent God well. And I want God to be represented well for his sake. I want people to think, about, think of God's name and I want them to think of beauty and grace and hope and healing. Paul brings us to some specific instructions on what it looks like to, to get healthy, stay healthy. What are the new behaviors that are going to be required for God's church to make progress in, in, in reflecting well who God is? In specific, uh, specifically, what he asks us to do here is this. As a God-pleasing church that is healthy, it's important for us to express special treatment to our leaders and our needers. Now, Paul here isn't writing, the author of this, of this uh, passage here is not writing to the leaders of the church. He's writing to the members of the church. He's writing to the body of the church. And he said, if you want to be an outstanding, healthy, growing, vibrant church, it's important for you to recognize it, to, to, th- th- that you're going to have to pay special attention and express special care for two kinds of people. Your leaders among you, and also the needers among you. N-E-E-D-E-R-S, the needers. So we have leaders and needers. It's important that you recognize here today that um, this passage is very difficult to preach as a pastor to your own people. It's very difficult. There's a more difficult passage to preach, and I'm going to actually refer to that uh, a little bit later. And the reason is because it would seem self-serving, right? And it's important for you to recognize, I'm sure none of you are, um, are prone to think this, but it's important for you to know that this is a passage that I feel like God has kind of directed me to, to, to share with you guys, and uh, has absolutely nothing to do with how Pastor Mike said, hey, why don't, we, um, why don't we talk a little bit about taking care of me? I mean the pastors of the church, or the elders of the church. It's important for you to recognize that. This is something that um, if you're preaching through a series, you get to this and you say, hey, I'm the pastor. This is in the Word. I want to make sure that you see this here. This is all a part of being healthy, even though the payoff is going to be for me. Really, the payoff here, the payoff here is going to be for God's church. God's church is going to be healthier because we take to heart what's said here in this passage, okay? So I just want to make sure that we kind of walk through that a little bit here together. but it does have the potential of sounding a little bit uncomfortably self-serving, but I, I, think, I think we're going to be okay. Uh, these aren't my ideas. These are God's ideas. These aren't my tactics. These are God's tactics. But here's the key. If you don't take this to heart tonight, if this doesn't land, if this doesn't take root and bear fruit, there's a lot at stake. And what's at stake is that the leaders face a, a, a period of burnout and the needers get burnt up. Let me say that again. What's at stake is if we don't take this to heart and live the stuff out that we're going to read tonight, what's at stake is leaders getting burnt out and needers getting burnt up. We have to absorb the instructions given to this fledgling early church who's already been complimented. They're not doing a bad job. They're not misrepresenting God. They're much acclaimed and much highly reputed among the city. And yet what he's saying here specifically is there's two sets of people that need special care. We have a hard time in our culture with this idea of special treatment now. That's, a, that's another one of these kind of politically incorrect taboo things to say is, to any, is for anything to be, anyone to be treated unfairly. Everything's got to be even. Uh, everything's got to be equitable. All the playing field has to be level. Um, but, but strangely enough, right in the Bible here it says, show special treatment, unique treatment, special. Not for everybody, but special for two kinds of people. Your needers and your leaders. And of course, by leaders here, he's talking about leaders, people who are in spiritual authority. I guess in this context, it would be the elders, uh, people who have oversight, a gift to preach and teach and handle the Word of God and train um, in the Scriptures and also qualify with the, uh, the traits of a biblical elder, all of the, all of the um, very careful list of things that are important for somebody's character. But the looming risk 
that is, that is facing all of our churches is the risk that our elders get burnt out in trying to take people where God wants them to go. That's the risk. And, and then from that comes a domino effect of people getting injured because the pastor or the elder or the elders are burnt out. The fragile believers that get burned in the church is another um, painful reality. There's, there's people in our church family, no matter how big or how small, it's probably true that there is a needer in the church and the needer in the church is someone who's fragile, who's weak theologically or weak morally, but they're fragile people. They're not um, less important. They're not less valuable. They're different and they're weaker. And, and no matter... Um, what you think about somebody, it's easy to miss the needers in the church because they learn to function well, but somehow on the inside, somehow in their character, somehow in their lifestyle, they've developed a level of uh, fragility, if that's a word. If it's not, write it down. You just got a brand new and drop that on your spouse when you get home. So let's talk about preventing a leader from getting burnt out and protecting needers from being burned. That's our responsibility. That's our privilege. As the body of Christ, we take the privilege and the responsibility of protecting the leaders and protecting the needers. I had the very um, rare opportunity that I was given to speak in health classes, 17 different schools around Onondaga County, and I got a chance, I was invited for almost 10 years to speak in 7th grade classes, 8th grade classes, and all of these high school classes in some of the bigger, smaller city and suburban schools and rural schools, and we got a chance to speak to health classes on a regular basis, and oftentimes I would have lunch in the teacher's lounge. And I was, I was genuinely shocked at some of the conversations I heard teachers having. If you're a teacher here, I'm sure that um, you've either experienced this or this is also um, kind of laid heavy on your heart, but I was shocked to hear some of the conversations I heard between teachers about their students. I heard teachers using nicknames for students that were derogatory. I heard teachers talking about students in a mocking way. In fact, there were times where I thought, there's no doubt this teacher is expressing themselves in such a way that I'm positive it's time for this teacher to get out of teaching. In fact, when I think back, I, half my teachers, I thought, were ready to get out of teaching. Over at Liverpool High School, I was kind of like, man, the clock is ticking. How long do they let these dinosaurs, I mean teachers, teach? How long? But one of the things that struck me was this. If our students can't go to a school full of teachers where the teachers, the professionals, the people in charge of caring and instructing kids, if our students can't go to schools where the teachers love them, where can we send our kids? Where do they go to learn from people who love them if we can't send them to school? Now, my answer to that, of course, is home, right? They go home. That's where they learn. They, they go to the home with mom and dad and their siblings and extended family and so on. But in our culture, we've got these schools. But more urgently more desperately, more heartfelt and passionately. You know what I really believe? Where can the people who lead and where can the people who need go to be loved and cared for if they can't go to God's church that's flowing with the gracious, spent blood of Jesus on our behalf? Where can they go if they can't go to our churches and be loved and protected and cherished and treated well? I don't know where they go. Where do you go next? I can think of a hundred places where you certainly don't go, but it's important for us to recognize as God's church, it's a high responsibility, but it's a, it's a great privilege to participate in what God has provided to help protect people from being burned out or being burned up. Paul says um, today, when we focus on these passages, the Apostle Paul is saying, it is the intentional, determined work of loving church leaders and caring for our church leaders. It is intentional and it is purposeful. And what I'm hoping to trigger in your heart is that something happens in your mind where you say, I am no longer willing to just kind of go adrift and let my relationship with leaders and needers be just kind of coincidental or incidental. What I'm asking you to do is I'm asking you to consider, would you be willing to open yourself to the possibility that the Holy Spirit wants to use you to bring health, depth, vibrancy, to the life of this church body by protecting leaders and caring in a special way for needers. 
and let God recruit you to the army of people who should be full of grace and care. And specifically, he gives us instructions. He says, dear brothers and sisters, that's the membership of the body, right? He says, dear brothers and sisters, honor those who are your leaders in the Lord's work. They work hard among you and they give you spiritual guidance. Show them great respect and wholehearted love because of their work and live peacefully with each other. The church leaders, here's what they get. Here's their special treatment. They get honor, they get respect, and they get love. And I, and I want to kind of cue you in here because it doesn't say to the degree in which your leaders earn respect, earn honor, and earn love, give it to them. You notice that's not there? It's almost like a marriage relationship where you're making an investment unconditionally. You're making an investment to somebody knowing that as I invest in them love, honor, and respect, I'm going to make somebody unlovely more beautiful. And I'm going to do it graciously the way God relates to His church. This is the kind of relationship where the body doesn't force the leader to earn respect, to earn honor, or to, or, or to uh, uh, um, love them with condition. It simply says, show it to them. As a young church, be the one who honors your leaders in the Lord's work. Now, leaders, of course, the word honor means high regard. It means esteem. It means to show value, to esteem value to them. Um, this is referring to the elders in the church who are over you. And by over you, of course, we mean who are uh, provided care and oversight, like someone who's in charge of protecting um, something or someone. Show them great respect and wholehearted love. Now, why is it that some churches... Sorry, some church elders and pastors get generic positional respect or half-hearted love. And what I, mean, what I mean by that is, why is it that some churches treat their pastors with positional respect but not personal respect? And by that I mean they have a general respect for the position of leadership and they extend a level of respect to that particular pastor because they hold the position. But it's not a, it's not a respect that's given to them that's personal. Does that make sense? You, you follow me on that? Why is it that some people give a generic respect rather than personal respect or personal half-hearted or, or half-hearted love? I think it's possible that it's because there are pastors, leaders, overseers who have genuinely done damage to real people in their real lives, and now it's difficult for them to extend them. It's difficult for a, a church member to extend themselves to the pastor or make themselves vulnerable or to offer respect or love or honor, right? They've, they've, they've been damaged. They've been dinged up. They've been uh, overlooked. They've been, uh, um, uh, somehow they've been, uh, injured in their relationship or in their activity with the church. It's also possible that there are shepherds who fail to love and lead because they're fearful. It's also because when we look at loving pastors who are working hard, we think about the pastors that we've been relating to and we don't have, we're not real sure they're working as hard as we would imagine they could or should. And so there's a little less respect because somehow they've picked the lazy route or the easy route. Or, uh, there's a joke going around my family and my church for quite some time and they used to say things like, you know what I want to do? When I retire, I want to become a full-time pastor. Now think of that for a second. When I retire, when I have all this time on my hands, I want to become a full-time pastor. And what they meant by that is I want the pastor's schedule. And when I retire it's going to feel like uh, it's going to be, I'm going to have the same schedule as a full-time pastor. Three days a week they golf and three days a week they're out to lunch with people and three more days a week they're home with their families. That's nine days in one single week that they're, that's got some downtime. But don't, don't forget, don't, don't, short, don't short circuit here because all the, all the good pastors I know do work at least one day a week because everybody's coming Sunday and they're going to be there. So sometimes there's a disconnect or a short circuit in what is really what is hard work. And we're going to talk, that, talk about that in a second. But there's also shepherds who look out for their own interests and frankly, they're just in a carnal way striving to preserve themselves, right? Protect themselves, preserve themselves. And all those things lead to a relationship with the church family that makes it hard for them to respect, love, and honor the leader, the pastor. You know what I submit to you? I submit to you that the pastors who are hurting people are pastors that are probably in some way, shape, or form, they're already burnt out. They're already on empty. They're already gassed. Um, there's an institute that studied pastoral leadership and the vocation of the pastor. And, um, 
at the risk of losing you on statistics, I think it's important for us to, to listen to these and look at these and see, and if you can, see if you could take some of these in, okay? 50% of the pastors that were interviewed said they were unable to meet the demands of the job. Half of the pastors interviewed said, I can't meet the demands of the job. 90% of all people who were asked said the reason that they went to a church family or left a church family was because of the pastor. Did you hear that? 90%. I mean, that means 9 out of 10 people coming and going will point to and give credit to or subsequently, or in contrast, blame the pastor for their coming and going. There's more. It gets worse. 70% of pastors feel, feel grossly uh, unable to make ends meet. 70% of pastors aren't able to, don't feel like they can make the financial ends meet. 90% of the pastors interviewed said they feel like they're inadequately trained to cope with ministry demands. 90% of pastors also said the ministry was completely different than what they thought it would be uh, before they entered the ministry. 70% of pastors constantly fight depression. Get that. Seven out of ten pastors reported that they constantly are fighting depression. 50% of pastors feel so discouraged that they would leave the ministry if they could, but they have no other way of making a living. In other words, they say their street value is zero. I was sharing a little bit of this with my church family one time and I said, it occurred to me, I turned to my wife and I said, honey, you're worth more on the street than I am. And she was like, what? I said, oh, never mind, never mind, never mind. No, no, that's not what I meant. What I meant is you have a career, you can go make a living, and I can't. No, and I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. I meant you have, you have, a, like you have a degree and stuff. It was so goofy. My church was like, ugh. 50% of pastors feel so discouraged that, oh, that they would leave the ministry. I said that 80% believe pastoral ministry has negatively affected their families. 80% of spouses feel the pastor, their, their husband or wife, the pastor, is overworked. 80%. 70% do not have someone they consider a close friend. 40% report serious conflict with a parishioner at least every four weeks. Every month there's some serious conflict with somebody. The number one reason pastors leave the ministry is they believe God wants them to go in one direction, but the people are not willing to follow or change. So basically, the number one reason pastors leave the ministry is because they feel called to lead, but there, there isn't really enough people willing to follow them. 50% of the ministers starting out will not last five years in ministry. Nine out of every ten ministers will not retire as a minister in some form. So here's what we're learning, that the scene is alarming. That, the, that, that, that what we're facing in, in church leadership is more than sad. It's long hours being worked in a job with too many demands, too little pay. Many have the wrong skills, the wrong expectations. Their family is being pressured and battered and pastors are discouraged and depressed with no friends. And serious conflict once a month, month after month after month with people who will not follow is bringing elders to the brink of burning out. I want to be a part of something that shines so brightly that the people who aren't on the inside, they're on the outside, say, I want to know what's going on in there. I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that. And a part of that, by that, I mean, I want to be a part of a place where there are leaders being loved, cherished, cared for, and, and, and um, being honored in ways that defy logic, that are not normal, that are, in fact, could be described as supernatural. So the default mode of a lot of our followers in thinking about the way that our leadership isn't leading well is to gripe or gossip. That's the default way. Remember I said if you just let yourself go to default, you just get in the stream and you go with the flow, it'll be gossip and griping. Gossip and griping. That's just who we are. It's the way some of us works. I mean, some of us are a lot cheerier than that, but I think the generic, average, everyday, run-of-the-mill person just gravitates towards griping and gossiping about what's wrong and why it isn't the way it should be and so on. And what I'm asking you to consider today is to be a people of grace. I'm asking you to consider today being a people who demonstrates and expresses and, uh, and is 
is just immersed and immersing others in grace, right? And by grace, I mean giving something to, something to somebody who hasn't necessarily earned it. Giving something to somebody who um, doesn't deserve it. And being able to breathe grace to those that, we, um, that are leading us is so helpful. In the book of Hebrews, the author puts it this way. Listen to the take that the author in Hebrews takes. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Get that? Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. What kind of leaders should we have? We should have leaders leading God's church who are able to do it with joy. Who are able to think, you know what? It's hard out there in the real world, but one place I'm really finding strength and health and vitality and vibrance is my relationship with my church body. It's such a life-giving source for me because of the kind of people that God is um, building. By the way, the, the author of Hebrews goes on to say this, listen, let them do this with joy, that's the elders, and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. See, it's of no advantage to have a miserable leader. It's of no advantage to the followers to have a miserable, sick, burned out leader, right? Anybody ever go into a restaurant? And I remember going to one of my favorite restaurants down the road. I, I grew up at Zeb's. I mean, I lived at home part-time and I lived at Zeb's the other half of the time. And what drew me there was the Zeb Original Wings, and from the time I was 11 years old until I was in my uh, mid-30s, I would find myself at Zeb's with friends, family. People would come out of town, out of state, out of the country, and I would say, you've got to go get wings with me. I'm gonna, we're going to go to Zeb's. i get a little flavored soda, right? you get a little vanilla in your Pepsi, and they bring out like a pail of it. And when you're done, they'll refill your pail. And then the wings come, and they're the jumbo wings with the little Zeb original sauce. It's hot sauce mixed with blue cheese with some crumbly on it with some oregano. <laughs> Thank God. And one day, I brought two friends in that came all the way from Northern Ireland, and I said to them, you've got to try these wings. You're not going to believe it. And I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done that. I should quit with the hyping it up and just leave it and say, we're going to try some wings and see if you like it. And the manager um, brings, the, um, brings the, uh, the wings to us, and I look at it, and I immediately recognize a, these, these aren't the jumbo wings, these are the pigeon wings. You know the pigeon wings sometimes these restaurants go to to save some money, like the little tiny guys? They look like they're out of the freezer, you know, they're the, uh, the little package, and there they are. And I was like, mm, man, those, uh, those don't look right, so don't eat your wings. Hold on, I'm going to get the manager. The manager comes over, and I said to the guy, I said, not only are these wings too small, but I also noticed they're overcooked. I can kind of see the the blackened bone there where the kind of the wing is kind of cooked down too far and it turned the bone a little dark. And, and he said, that's the way our wings come out. We have to cook them thoroughly so that they don't uh, poison our customers. I said, I know, but you got to understand, I've been like I was born and raised here. I know what these are supposed to look like. And I sounded like a church member. I said, I was here before you got here, Mr. Manager, and I'm going to be here at this restaurant long after you're gone. So don't tell me how these wings are supposed to look, okay? You may run this restaurant, but I've invested in this restaurant for my entire adult life. Now, actually, I was very polite to him, and I said, these wings, just they're not right. They're overdone. He's like, all right, well, I'm just telling you, this is the way we cook them. It's 11 minutes in the fryer, blah, blah, blah. He goes away. He comes back two and a half minutes later. Now, you're probably not um, like short or cooks, but don't you imagine it takes longer to fry up new wings than two and a half minutes? So I was very suspicious when he comes around the corner and there they are. And I know what it looks like when you put it in the microwave and you just heat them up a little bit. It, every, every wing was laying exactly where it was when it left and whatever. So I called the guy over. I said, I'm so sorry. These just, I don't think that they're, they just seem like, and he said, I'm sorry. This is the way that it is. This is the way it is. And if you don't like it, I don't know what to tell you. I was like, oh, like a shot to the heart. You know, is, is Zeb's divorcing me? Are they leaving me forever? And here's what I recognize. Here's what I recognize. The same thing is true here that is true in our local churches. When the manager is miserable, when the leader is deficient and empty and grumpy and hurting and whatever, it's going to be of no advantage to anybody. 
And it occurred to me that this poor guy must feel like he's stuck here at this restaurant because it has really, uh, it has really slipped. And, and, and at some point or other, I felt bad for this guy. But I want, you to, I want you to just kind of, if you don't mind, I want you to think of that on a broad scale. What does a church family look like with an empty, spent, hurting, disconnected, confused, uh, um, burnt out leader? or leaders. Here's what the Hebrews author says. That type of leader who's groaning and empty is of no advantage to you. In other words, when you invest in your leader, do you know who you're investing in? You're investing in your own family. When mom is happy, who's happy in the family? Everybody's happy, right? Everybody's happy. So it's to your advantage as a kid or a spouse to make sure mom is happy. It's to the advantage of the body of Christ to be sure that the elder, the leader, the overseer, the protector is well appreciated and loved and honored and and, and specifically loved, cherished, and respected. In 1 Timothy, Paul, the apostle, is writing again to young Timothy. And you know what he says to him? Timothy, the elder, he says, the elders do their, who do their work well should be respected and paid well. That's what he says. If they do their work well, they should be respected and paid well. Especially those who work hard at both preaching and teaching. So in other words, he's saying that preaching and teaching has a level of difficulty and when there's an elder who's working hard at it, express respect to them. I know that I am preaching here today to a a, a body of believers who regularly gets preaching and teaching that comes from a leader who's well-trained and and spirited and passionate. Um, I wish uh, Pastor Mike was here to, to hear me say, I am regularly with him and inspired to love God's Word a little bit more than I did than when I was visiting with him. I am regularly drafting from his investment in not just preaching the Word of God well, but preaching it accurately. You know, if you watch, and and I'm so sorry, I'm a guest speaker, so I can kind of say some things, and then I'll leave here, and you don't have to deal with me, and I don't have to deal with you. But if you're watching TV preachers, one of the things that they do well is they preach with this incredible gift, and they communicate so well, and it's so motivating, and so influential, and I think so effective, but not necessarily accurate. And oftentimes, I can't tell you, here's a little look into my private life. I often listen to TV preachers and say, I wish I could give myself the liberty to preach that text that way without feeling like I am betraying the accuracy of the Bible. Let me give you an example. A couple months ago, I was watching TV, and one of the most famous TV preachers that's on Christian television um, was preaching this. If you know the story of Joseph, this will make sense. If you don't, this will this won't seem that bad. But there's a scene in the story of Joseph where the um, the brothers, Joseph's brothers, are leaving Egypt, and they had planted in their bags. They had planted a um, some silver, right? And the, 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 the brothers are leaving Egypt and Joseph had planted silver as a test for them. Actually, it was a scheme to kind of get them to, uh, um, to test their own hearts. And, um, and as they're leaving, they discover this silver, but it wasn't their silver and it was in their bag. And they, and they reached in there and they realized, uh-oh, this is from Egypt. They're going to think we stole this, right? But the TV preacher was saying this, some of you have been battered, broken down. Some of you are walking away from the king's presence and you feel you're forlorn, you're dragging yourself around. And the problem with you is that you're not reaching your hand in the bag. Because as soon as these brothers reached their hand in the bag, they discovered all kinds of wealth that came from Egypt, right? Do you get that? I mean, do you, do, do you tune into how far off and how opposite that that really is? Here's what I love that we have an elder at Renovation Church that would never be caught, and this is a terrible thing to do. I don't mean to say that we're righteous and the TV preachers are not righteous. Please, please, hear my heart on this. All I'm saying, in order to be accurate, it takes a lot of work. It takes an unbelievable amount of, of skill and training and research and toiling with God and with the text and making sure that what you're hearing is actually what God has said. Because I don't know about you, nothing makes me more crazy than somebody misquoting me to somebody else. 
I mean, that makes me crazy. I hear my kids telling their friends what their dad said, and I go, <laughs> I didn't say anything like that. And now they don't just tell their friends, they tweet their friends and anyone else who follows their Twitter feed. And I just want to catch it as it goes away as they misquote me. Imagine how God feels when his, his appointed, designated, elected elders come and stand before his people and misquote them. So I want, you to, I want you to consider that Paul here is saying eldership is hard work, even in the preparation of the word, so that preachers like Pastor Mike and myself and who are just local, everyday, run-of-the-mill elders aren't here telling people, your problem is that you're not reaching in the bag to take the silver that God the King, Pharaoh, wants you to have to bless your life. That would be so easy. Every time I look at a new scripture text, I go, oh, I know what this could, this, I should probably say that. Oh, that's clever. I like that. In fact, I could probably make all the letters start with P all the way down. That's very clever. People love that. But then you know what happens? I start to study the text. I start to read and find out what it really means, what it meant, what the context was, what the historical background is, and what it really means to us today. And all of those clever ideas go out the window. But it only comes with hard work. It only, otherwise, it just, literally, this just becomes like a, a, a springboard into all kinds of crazy ideas like God wants to bless you if you're willing to reach in your bag and pull out the silver cup, then you'll see how much God loves you and how much he wants to take care of you. Preaching is hard work. But here's the thing. Paul uses the word hard work, and here's what he's saying. He's saying toil, he's saying the word striving, and he's saying the word struggle which is the equivalent of saying somebody is in manual labor and it's hard work, they're sweaty, they're toiling, they're struggling. But he says preachers, elders, who are um, deserving of respect are the kind of elders who are working in such a way as they are breaking a sweat. And of course, if you're a manual laborer, you know manual labor is hard work, right? So when you see another manual labor dude, you're like, dude, I know you work hard, right? I see your dirty fingernails. You know, I know you got all cracked fingers from all of the manual labor, and, and we can kind of see that's hard work. And if you're uh, an intellectual person and you're in the intellectual line of work, you see other I- people who use their intellect in their work, and you kind of know that's hard work. It's straining. That kind of concentration takes its toll. Then there's emotional uh, people who are in social services and they're dealing with people's lives, and you go, oh, that's hard work, you know. That's, uh, and, and people who are emotionally engaged in their job, but there's this other, other thing in leadership called responsibility that's hard to describe to people. When you're responsible, for, you ever been responsible for someone else's kids? You ever hosted a pool party with a bunch of little kids? You ever done that? I did that once and I swore to, I said to my wife, we're never, ever going to do that again. She said, why not? That was fun. I said, honey, I got three ulcers. I got ulcers in my knees and my back. I got them up here in my shoulders. I have ulcers everywhere. Because why? We've got a pool We've got little kids crisscrossing and running all over the place and I can't stop thinking that one of them is going to go face down and not be detected. And what starts to weigh down on you is responsibility. I'm responsible. And that heaviness, how do you describe that to somebody? The responsibility. The responsibility. The expectations that parents are going to come and they're going to pick up their kid and he's going to be alive. Right? And it's my job to protect the child. And there's that responsibility. Uh, it's like, it's basically like, um, how many of you um, are parents? Raise your hand if you're a parent. Um, raise your hand if you believe at times parenting has been tiring. <laughs> My wife and I have some young, we have four kids. We have from 16 all the way down to six years old. And um, every now and then my wife says, my, my kids, you know, it gets to be 10 o'clock and one of my kids comes around the corner in our bedroom and they go, Mama, and she goes, ah, 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 I'm done parenting. Talk to your father. <laughs> and I say, honey, you can't do that. You are a parent 24-7. It's an honor. It's a privilege that God has given you. Children are a gift from the Lord as I turn over. And they specifically said, Mommy, by the way. But she says, I get tired. I have to turn it off. I can't, I can't. I can't parent 24-7. I've got to disconnect. And, and, and here's the last thing I want to say about this section, then real briefly we're going to talk about the next, the neater section real quick, okay? But there's a part of eldership that's just like parenting, but it's not like parenting your own kids. It's like parenting someone else's kids. And that, by that I mean trying to figure out how to relate to a kid who's not yours. How do you motivate children who aren't using the same um, fundamental methods that that you have taught your own kids you know what i'm saying it's one thing to relate to your kids but when you bring in someone else's kids and you're trying to motivate them or you're trying to kind of 
communicate with them or connect with them. There's challenges. And in large part, what Paul is saying here, it's hard work like parenting someone else's children, trying to connect, motivate, sustain, protect, uh, lead, serve, love, care for, provide oversight and authority, but to do it with humility requires a lot of responsibility. So I think you hear what I'm saying. That effort is not something you see when elders are punching in and punching out and you look at their clock and you go, whoa, 70 hour a week, that must be tiring. It's it's tiring whether it's one hour a week or whether it's 100 hours a week. The weight of responsibility of eldership. Now, don't, let me, don't, don't, think, don't feel bad for elders, okay? It's a joy to be an elder. God has set apart and called and, and, and has a special plan to use elders. He gives them special gifts and so on. So don't feel bad. All I want you to, all I want you to do is I want you to be aware, okay? Please don't feel bad for elders. This isn't our opportunity to say, oh, you should, you know, Feel, feel, um, feel bad. So secondly, and, and briefly, in, God, in a God-pleasing church, the needers get special treatment. The leaders get special treatment and we can protect them from burnout, but we also have a responsibility to protect the needers from being burned up. Nothing is more heartbreaking than talking to somebody who used to be a part of God's family and is no longer with God's family and here's what they say. I had a really tough time with the people. There was just a disconnect or there was a level of hypocrisy or there was a level of, uh, I got treated a certain way. Now, as a leader, you know, there's always two sides to a story, but it's still heart-wrenching, none the same. And here are the specific kinds of needers that Paul is talking to, talking about in this local church. He said there's three kinds. There are those who are idle, which basically means those who are immature, they're weak in maturity. They have, they, they're not going anywhere in their own spiritual life or in their own professional and personal life. They have just started to slide into idol. Do you know that the Apostle Paul says if you want to protect them and want to take care of them, warn them about how dangerous it is to be idle. Right? Doesn't it seem like the loving thing to do is to just don't say anything? That's how we were in my family. You know, if you want to love somebody, you just don't, you don't, you don't, say, you don't ever tell them anything's wrong. You just pretend like everything's okay. I, I, I would submit to you that the loving thing to do is to warn people who are idle because the scriptures teach us warn those people who are weak in maturity. Instead of, re, instead of uh, uh, being condemning, replace it with a warning. I know who does this. The hard workers among us are the ones that look at the idle and they, they have a really hard time. The self-made, highly motivated, hardworking, sun up to sundown, burn the candle at both ends, they struggle with the idle person who doesn't seem to have any direction. Some of you are married to this person. Some of you gave birth to these people, but they don't seem to be going anywhere. They're not motivated to do anything. And you're wondering, what do I do? Here's what we don't do. We don't condemn them. We don't confront them. We lovingly warn them. Keep warning them. They're weak in maturity, and life and you can help spur them on to keep going. Um, the, the second kind of person is, is the timid now what this specifically means is, it, it, the timid means those who are theologically weak. They don't, here in Thessalonians, they had questions about what happens to my relatives who I love after they die. I mean, are they in heaven? Do they go to a waiting place? What happens to them? And Paul is trying to train them as to what happens theologically when somebody dies. But basically, these timid people are the people who are weak theologically and there's a little bit of anxiety about things that's just basically wrapped around not being sound in their doctrine or real steady and clear in their theology. And in a, in, a, in a young, vibrant church that's committed to the Scriptures, those, the, those types of bodies can easily marginalize those who are weak theologically. They can easily disconnect with those people and reconnect with people who are like them theologically and allow those who are weak in theology to kind of be marginalized. But it's our responsibility to love them by inspiring them, training them, and... Um, taking responsibility for their growth, their growth theologically. And lastly, there's the weak morally, those who are morally weak. If you watch a lot of TV or you get around a lot of Christians, our position in facing those who are weak morally is to take a position of condemnation or a position of harsh, judgmental clashes, clashing with those people. And scriptures teach us here, for those who are weak, and specifically here it's talking about those who are weak in their sexual morality, that are among the church family. Paul says, tenderly take care of them. What he means by that is to encourage them. And the word encouragement here means put your arm around them. 
See, there's a different position that the church takes. When somebody is morally weak, somebody is struggling with sexual fidelity, someone is struggling with high moral standing in their own sexual purity, the easiest position to take as a, as a fellow Christian is this position. But God says, loving, vibrant church families aimed at protecting those who need, they take this position. They don't reach their arms forward with a finger. They reach their arms to the side with an open hand and they hold them close and they take care of them. They encourage them. They walk with them through the difficulties of making progress in in the mortification of sin. It's a process and it requires grace. Do you know what led me to repentance? How about you? It was the kindness of God that led me to repentance. Do you know what wakes me up and keeps me apart from the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in my own heart, sealing me and keeping me, do you know what continues to keep me humble and submitted to God? His kindness, His mercies that are new every morning. Those are the things that make me want to say, all right, I give up, I repent. I want to wash my hands, cleanse my heart. Those are the things that bring purity in my life. Do you know what never works? Shame on you. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. That just doesn't work for me. God is saying, a healthy church body that shines brightly, that pleases God as a church body that protects its leaders, but man, it cherishes, it warns, it it encourages, it puts its arm around, and it brings strength to those who are needers. And that's that's a responsibility that I think we all take seriously. Be careful of dealing with those in sexual compromise. Be careful in dealing with those people with shock, with horror and harshness. And if you've got teenagers, you've learned to just roll with, uh, you've learned to just roll with your reactions anyways, right? When they talk about the things they're seeing, hearing, or people are doing, and you just kind of be like, you learn to just go, oh, is that so? And meanwhile, on the inside, you're growing ulcers on top of ulcers and so on. But um, So Paul wrote to the stronger Christians and he said, hold on to the weaker brothers and sisters. Cling to them. Put your arm around them. And certainly, all people get kindness. Even those who've done evil. You know what? It, it is so easy to befriend and to care about and to be friendly with those who love us. But do you know what makes a church family shine brightest in the dark? Is that in treating their enemies with the same kind of love and compassion that God has treated His enemies. With grace and kindness and gentleness and letting God defend our reputation, not, um, uh, not us, not taking in, 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 a, in an aggressive way um, so here's the opportunity we have. When, when we're doing good to everyone and we're patient with everyone, you know what we're doing? We are marketing our church family with God-sized marketing. It's one thing to tell everybody, hey, we got, some, you know, we got a young, vibrant, energetic pastor who's on mission, handling the word, who's an encourager. And, um, you know, that, that's, that's, that's great. And it's another thing to say, hey, we meet at this time and here's when we get together or, or however it is that churches spread the word. But you know what really, you know what the most compelling marketing is the most compelling marketing is a church family that has been so changed by the grace of God and the work of Jesus with the broken body and the shed blood. His grace is so overflowing in us that it's spilling on people. And when that spills on people, they say, this is supernatural. I've been to this particular group of people and I didn't get treated like that. I have failed in this circle of people. They didn't treat me like that. I have stumbled over here with this group of people. I didn't get treated like that. But when I stumbled into this family, I got treated with grace. And you know what the problem is? The problem is that this kind of honor, respect, wholehearted love for our leaders, warning and encouraging and caring and doing good for our leaders, the problem is that we're unable to do that without conditions, right? It's so tied up to conditions. If you, then I. It's the way we are. How do we live at peace with everyone? Even people who drive us bananas or nothing like us in any way, shape, or form. Here's the reality. The reality is we cannot do that. The reality is we don't have the power to do that. The reality is we're too finite and we're too limited and we're too needy ourselves to be able to do that. Because we are conditional lovers of our leaders and we tend to be comparative or competitive with other people, we we naturally elevate our needs above the needs of other people. We can't do what Paul says we should be doing. So let me ask you this, in closing, where does that power come from? 
Where do we get that power to love like this? Here it is. We delight in what Jesus has done for us. And we delight in what He has done. Do you know what He did for Judas shortly before Judas betrayed Him was serve Him like He did every other disciple? Do you know that Peter, given the opportunity to say, no, I am with Jesus. I am on Jesus' team. I am a part of the kingdom advancing. God's apostolically stretching His church out across the world, uh, uh, starting right here in the Middle East. And I'm with Jesus. Me and Him knew each other. We were a part. We shared life together. He scampered away and cowered into the dark and betrayed Him. And, and, and denied that he knew him. And later Jesus circles around and he finds Peter fishing. Wait a second, the apostle Peter, right? The disciple Peter, who was in full-time kingdom ministry, advancing the kingdom, had now slipped out of ministry, or, or what we call had a failure by denying Jesus. Now I've done some lousy things, but no one's ever heard me deny Jesus. Peter denies Jesus. He ends up fishing. And Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, comes and he restores Peter. But he calls Peter back in. And you know what he says to Peter? Peter, I'm going to pay attention not to what you did, but I'm going to pay attention to the desire of your heart and I want to know something. Do you love me? Right? What's in your heart, Peter? What's in your heart? Now, if Jesus had an opportunity to say, Peter, I came back to make sure you knew that you have dropped the ball. I was counting on you. You were the one. He didn't do that instead. So we look at Jesus and see how he served Judas. He recommissioned Peter back into full-time ministry. He forgives the people, the Roman soldiers who are executing them, and he says, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. That kind of grace, when we recognize how Jesus did it, but also that Jesus extended that same kind of grace to us, do you know who the real needers are in this room? It's me. We're the real needers. I'm the real needer. I'm the real weak theologically. I'm the real weak morally. I'm the one who's really idle. It's me. I'm the one. And I know how God, by His grace, reaches out and shows kindness to me. And when He shows kindness to me, do you know what happens when I stay in tune with that kindness? It starts to well up in me. And I say, God, thank you for your grace. And get this, I recognize, it resonates with me to be idle. It resonates with me to be um, weak. It resonates with me to be timid. It resonates with me. And you want to hear something bizarre? That even though I'm a needer, God has set me aside to be a leader. You talk about grace. And as that grace wells up in me, do you know what happens? It starts to spill over and spill out on people that I interact with and say, Thank God for His grace because now I can encourage, love, serve, protect those people who are needers. And what about the ones who do evil to me? I've done evil to my Father in heaven. I have faltered and failed myself to Him. And how does He respond back to me? That's where the power comes from. The power comes, in, comes when we tune into the blood that should have been my blood and the broken body that should have been my broken body. And when I'm in tune with the fact that God substituted His own body and His blood for me, I got all the grace. I got the grace that spills out from eternity because He's given it to me. I can give it to other people. So here's what I want to ask you to consider. Showing grace, love, and tender care to people who don't deserve it. Because God shows grace, love, and tender care to we who don't deserve it. And that power gives us the ability to start expressing our appreciation. Can I ask you to do something specifically then? Can I, I, I want to challenge you. And this is, so, this is so hard to do because you're going to leave here and your life is going to start again. But could I ask you to consider doing something? And um, Pastor Mike has been a constant source of positive encouragement. And one of the things I love about Pastor Mike is he doesn't wait around for relationship to find him. He pursues it. And he doesn't wait around for you to encourage him. He encourages you. Um, and it's, it's handed out graciously. And um, he has been so, all of you have been so gracious about using our space that it's, it's, it's humbling. It's really humbling. Um, and I, would, I, I wonder if you would be willing, before the week is out, would you be willing to take and set aside some time, however long it takes you, to specifically, prayerfully, and thoughtfully express affection to your leader. Would you do that? Would you be willing to do that? Now, you could say no, and I'll never know, so that's okay too. But if you're willing to, would you specifically 
express. And here's the other thing I want you to do. That's half of it. The other half is, while you're doing that, would you pray that God would help connect you to somebody who's a needer and that in some way, shape, or form, you would express yourself with the same kind of note card. I say note card because it's practical. If you want to take them out to dinner or do whatever else, you can do that. But I'm saying something practical and tangible where you say, I'm going to aim my affection at our leader and a needer. Now, if you get a, a, an encouragement card from somebody, don't start thinking, hmm, which one of the parts of these needers was I? Was I the sexually immoral, weak dude, or was I the guy that was out of sorts theologically, or whatever? But all I want to do is, I want to invite you to stir up. And here's what I'm hoping. I'm not hoping that this church body is really thrilled to be a part of this church body. I'm hoping that God advances his kingdom and that someone who knows you, someone who is disconnected, who's looking on from the outside, recognizes this body shines bright. This is a bright body that is shining for, for, uh, in ways that I'm not familiar with and that it becomes winsome to people who recognize that you belong to God because of your love for one another. See what I'm saying? There's two, two impacts, internal and then there's a redemptive impact on the outside and, and I think that God can orchestrate that on his own. So um, thank you for um, the opportunity to, to, to encourage you and uh, thank you for the... Um, the way in which you're committing yourself to represent God well, and thank you for your partnership in being a healthy, vibrant church that is surrendered to and um, committed to the worship of Jesus and not the worship of buildings and the worship of, uh, of leadership and the worship of denominations and the worship of whatever. Thank you for worshiping Jesus. And you need to know that this body, exactly the way it is, is an inspiration to other pastors and elders in town who is committed to doing the right things and doing the right things well. And uh, it's an honor, Pastor Mike, it's an honor for me to know you and relate to you outside of these circles. And I consider him a, a dear friend and colleague. And it's my desire to be an encouragement to him because it's our responsibility to protect our leaders and our needers from being burnt out and from being burnt up. And we can do it because we've been given the power to accomplish it by God's grace. We don't have to accomplish it on our own. Thank God for that.